Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. One of the features of this new way of thinking that I've been trying to promote on this show, this open-mindedness, this attempt to bridge science and spirituality is that the walls of materialism are breaking down the barrier between mind and matter is collapsing perhaps this wall has always been a figment of our imagination and perhaps we are just now coming to the realization that it, it was a wall that we have constructed ourselves that there is really no barrier now, one of the best examples of this is the powerful placebo. And placebos are fake drugs, make-believe medical procedures that bring about real changes in the physical body. Under the current modern Western scientific worldview, this is not supposed to happen. Faith and belief are not supposed to affect matter but the placebo effect shows that faith and belief does improve the health of the physical body almost as well and at times better than the cures of modern science. Now today I'm very happy to have on the show one of the leading thinkers not only in the placebo effect but also in the new consciousness movement. His name is Joe Dispenza. He's the author of the new book, You Are the Placebo, Making Your Mind Matter, which debuted on the New York Times bestsellers list the first week it was released. He studied biochemistry at Rutgers, holds a BS with an emphasis on neuroscience. He's also a doctor of chiropractic degree at Life University in Atlanta. Over the last decade, he has lectured in roughly 26 countries spanning six continents, educating people about the role and function of the human brain. He's taught thousands of people how to reprogram their thinking through scientifically proven neurophysiologic principles. He's also the author of two earlier books, the, uh, the book Evolve Your Brain, The Science of Changing Your Mind, and also Breaking, and I'm sorry, and also The Habit of Being Yourself, How to Lose Your Mind and Create a New One. He's featured on the film What the Bleep Do We Know, the popular countercultural movie that uh, that really opened a lot of minds several years ago. And he's also featured on the new film, The People versus the State of Illusion. While not traveling and writing, Dr. Dispenza is busy seeing patients at his chiropractic clinic near Olympia, Washington. So we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Joe, thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome, Phil. I'm happy to be with you. Okay, so let's let's get rolling here for a second. What is the placebo effect, and what got you interested in it? Well, you know, I'm fascinated with the idea that you can give someone a sugar pill, a saline injection, or perform some false surgery or procedure, and a certain percentage of those people will accept, believe, and surrender to the idea, to the thought, that they're getting a real substance or a real treatment and they begin to program their autonomic nervous system to make their own pharmacy of chemicals that matches the exact chemical that they think that they're taking so if you think about it it's not the external substance that's doing the healing it's the person's innate ability to heal so i thought if i studied the placebo effect and I understood the mechanisms from a scientific standpoint of how it works. Is it possible then to teach people to do the exact same thing? And we have been doing enough workshops around the world in the last several years 
witnessed some really true amazing healings. And the person, instead of putting their faith and belief in something outside of them, they put their faith and belief in the field of potentials called the quantum field and their belief in themselves. And they begin to select unknown potentials and repeatedly embrace them emotionally until that unknown becomes unknown. And that's when they begin to reprogram their genetic makeup or really begin to turn around a condition or disease. So we saw people still healing, them, healing themselves from everything from MS to lupus to uh, you know, endocrine disorders to cancers. And it really exceeded my expectations of what I thought was possible in terms of the placebo because you know, placebo studies work really well for depression, they work really well for pain control, you know, there are certain things that work better for the placebo. And, you know, when you study these things, you see that the person that's taking the placebo for a depression, three out of four of those people uh, will get better, and the, the, the placebo will, will work as well as in, in any other drug. But <laughs> the interesting thing is that they're making their own chemistry of, of antidepressants, or the person who's, who's conditioned over time. Uh, for pain relief, they're making their own natural pain relievers. The body's doing that. So then it's the chemical change then that begins to signal new genes in new ways. And just like in any placebo study, sometimes you have to take the antidepressant for six or eight weeks to remind you of what that could be like. So when a person's taking, say, a sugar pill, that sugar pill represents to them a new potential called being better. Now, they're selecting a new thought, a clear intention, and if that person begins to emotionally embrace the idea of being better, in other words, they get enthusiastic, they get excited, they become inspired, they feel gratitude, it's that combination of a clear intention and an elevated emotion that literally changes their state of being. So the person who's believing in something outside of them and taking that pill every single day for depression is reminding themselves of a possible future reality because the emotion that's correlated with that intention begins to teach the body emotionally of what the future is going to be like. In other words, that emotion then, the body as the unconscious mind begins to believe it's in that future experience in the present moment. And if we keep doing that every day, sooner or later, we start noticing significant physical changes. So you don't need that external substance to move into a new state of being. It actually just requires a clear intention and an elevated emotion and understanding the mechanisms of how it works, and common people start doing the uncommon. One of the amazing things about, about the placebo effect, I think, is that it still fascinates science, and, and others, and anyone, and anyone that's, that's researched it, even though it, it's about, what, 60, 70 years old, it's one of these things that is an incredibly rich topic. Uh, I w I, I'm wondering, since you started uh, in neuroscience, what, what is the current thinking of the orthodox or the mainstream neuroscience on the, on the placebo effect? What 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 do the main what does the mainstream think about it? Well, I think the camp is divided. Uh, 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 we're at the point now where science is doing double-blind studies. That means that the patient nor the doctor knows who's getting the placebo and who's not. And now they're doing what's called triple-blind studies, where the patient, the physician, or the researcher, as well as the statistician, has no idea who's getting the placebo or not. But it's interesting because the neuroscientific model shows that it's based on three things. The first thing is, is what we call assigning meaning to something. In other words, the more you understand from a conscious standpoint how a drug works, uh, you understand how a certain procedure is going to occur, and you understand if the doctor communicates well and is enthusiastic about it, and even sometimes if the doctor is questioning whether you're the right person for the study, that, that it builds the person's uh, desire to have it. And so the research shows that if you take a group of uh, people, like there's a study that was done with uh, Latin American maids, and you divide them into two categories, and you watch them, these maids, 
you know, do their daily activities, you know, wash uh, and scrub tiles in the bathroom, flip mattresses, vacuum, you know, push furniture around. Those people, those young, those maids, uh, when the researchers studied them, found out that they actually exceeded the Surgeon General's requirement for exercise. They were actually burning more calories than they were consuming, but all of them were overweight. So in one group, they just allowed the maids to continue doing what they're doing, but in the other category, they had them <clears throat> sit down and they explained to them the benefits of exercise. You know, exercise is, uh, helps reduce body fat. It helps uh, to, to sh- uh, shrink your waist. It, it'll lower your, your overall weight, and it's good for your heart, and it's good for self-esteem. And they just told the maids, they gave them a course on, on what the benefits of exercise was. Well, within one month, all the maids lost weight. Their heart rates went down. They had smaller waist sizes, smaller body fat indexes, and they had a greater self-esteem. Now, they did nothing different except they understood what they were doing. And when we assign more meaning to what we're doing, we get better effects. So that's one thing. The second thing is what we talked about earlier. It's called expectation. When you begin to expect something to occur, you're selecting a thought in the future, and you're beginning to emotionally embrace it. And it's the combination of thoughts and feelings. Thoughts are the language of the brain, and feelings are the language of the body. And when you combine a thought and a feeling, that's called a state of being. So people have the ability to change their state of being. And if they continuously do that, they begin to knock on the genetic door that begins to reprogram our genetic expression. Now, we're not doomed by our genes in any way. That genes are a parts list of potentials. But if you're thinking the same thoughts, performing the same actions, making the same choices, creating the same experiences, and living by the same emotions, then you keep the same genes um, activated and other genes turned off. It, genes are like Christmas tree lights. So they upregulate, they turn on, and they downregulate, and they turn off. And genes make proteins, and proteins are responsible for the structure and function of your body, responsible for the expression of life or the expression of health. So on one gene, there's 35,000 different variations that can take place, and And when we begin to modify our behaviors, when we begin to create new experiences, there are specific genes called experience-dependent genes and behavior-dependent genes that literally are selected and instructed that begin to be passed on to to the next generation. So if you're studying individuals or you're studying laboratory animals in an unchanging environment, then you're not going to see much genetic change. But we now know that uh, if you take a group of stressed-out executives and you teach them uh, how to relax and how to do meditation and to do yoga uh, within a very short amount of time. They'll upregulate, you know, over 870 genes for health and downregulate over 650 genes for disease and inflammation. So <laughs> it's in like it's, weeks, it's like a you know I mean there there there's a lot here I don't want to interrupt but there but there's so much here because we're moving from a model where the external world including genes determine who we are to a model where we're seeing the the internal states mold to some extent who we can be and and that that Absolutely. is that that is sort of a, a a really exciting development and I think it's important to put this in context and I'm going to give it a shot and then I'm sh- I'm sure you're going to have uh in a a another perspective but there's this thing called dualism that we were all raised with in one way or the other. You know, I studied philosophy, so I'm I'm all into you know Descartes and and the great uh, philosophers throughout history and the whole issue about dualism. But but folks have to keep in mind that in one way or the other, that we have been taught to separate mind and matter as being two separate things and that one cannot affect the other. There are some people, and this is, this, is, this is something which i like you to touch upon, but there are some people that believe that the mind is only an epiphenomena, whatever that means, uh, that, that arises from the commingling or the, or the um, interaction of chemicals. So it's an emergent property of matter but even in that context, how does something like a belief or a thought go back 
and affect the matter. So, so, so we're caught up in this dichotomy here, and it's been programmed into our brains, this mind-matter dichotomy. And it seems to me things like the placebo effect are sort of have broken down, are helping to break down that that ghost in the machine. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm happy to be speaking with Dr. Joe Dispenza, the author of the New York Times best-selling book, You Are the Placebo, and we're talking about what the placebo effect really means and how our mindsets are changing in light of the developments we're seeing uh, on the power on the powerful placebo. So before my little break there, Joe, I, I, I wanted to set the tone on this dichotomy because you talk a lot about it. But what, what's your spin on what the placebo is saying about this old age this ghost in the machine model? Well, <clears throat> Descartes was very interested in doing his, his research and continuing without being frustrated by the church. And and so he created two spheres. One was called the sphere of science, and that was everything in the objective world, the large objects where planets rotating around the sun, apple falling from trees, you know. He was studying the physical laws of the universe. And then there was the mind, and that was just too convoluted. And so because the mind was so difficult, he put that in the sphere of religion. So, so science was always matter, never mind, and religion was always mind, never matter, and the two were never to be combined. And then, you know, um, Newton came along, and, you know, a hundred years later, he pretty much codified the underpinnings of what Descartes said by, by scientific laws and measurements. And because of Newton, we can shoot a rocket to the moon, and we can predict where things are going to be. So Newtonian physics, classical physics, is about the predictable. But when Einstein and Planck started studying the very tiny world, after Einstein's e equals mc squared equation, which showed that matter and energy are very, very, very intimately connected. But the, the, the currency converter of how matter and energy are related is the speed of light. So for the most part, anything that goes faster than the speed of light then, um, affects how matter and energy are related. But when they were studying the small subatomic world, they noticed that it didn't behave like the very large world that when an, when an electron was moving towards the nucleus of the atom, like an apple falling from the tree, it wasn't smooth and continuous, that it was hopping through fields. And then when they started measuring those effects, they noticed that the electron pretty much appeared everywhere they looked for it. So subjective mind, the observer, had an effect on the objective world. In other words, mind and matter are so intimately connected that it's difficult to separate the two. Now, a lot of people will tell you, well, mind and matter really, uh, that, that, that concept of the observer effect and collapsing the wave function, as it's called in quantum physics, only works for the very tiny, that it doesn't work for the very large. Well, my answer is always the same. Maybe we're just poor observers. Yeah. Maybe that we can get better at the way we look and observe. And if we're observing reality from a limited level of mind, and then we're conditioned into a specific belief system, then there's a strong possibility that we're omitting uh, realities or possibilities that we never have considered. So I think that um, with the new science of quantum physics and neuroplasticity and epigenetics, the new science of psychoneuroimmunology uh, always points the finger about how mind and matter are completely tied in. And here's a simple example. You know, stress knocks your body out of balance. Right. Stress response is what your body neatly does to return itself back to balance. And, you know, all organisms can tolerate short-term stress. A zebra gets chased by a lion. The zebra outruns the lion. It goes back to grazing. Stress is over. You get, you're driving down the road and the car cuts you off. You swerve out of the way. You have a stress response. By the time you get to work, you settle down. And the chemicals, those 1,300 chemicals, that mobilize energy to prepare you for a threat in your external environment is pretty much uh, um, metabolized in your body. But with human beings, you can turn on a stress response just by thought alone. You can think about your problems. You could think about past events that happened in your life. And what most people don't know is they're producing the same chemistry in their brain and body as if the event was happening. Yeah. 
So when a person starts to obsess about some worst-case scenario in their life, then for the most part, as they begin to think about that event and they emotionally embrace it, their body is their unconscious mind is beginning to believe it's in that future experience in the present moment. And that is the third element of the placebo called conditioning. So we begin to condition our body to become the mind of those emotions. And when the body becomes the mind, that's called a habit. So it's a scientific fact that the hormones of stress dysregulate and downregulate genes to create disease. We just said you can turn on the stress response just by thought alone. So by deduction, then, your thoughts can make you sick. That is the ultimate mind-body connection. <laughs> so if your yeah. thoughts can make you sick, can your thoughts make you well? Now, nobody likes to really delve into that. But when you teach people how to shorten refractory periods of their emotional reactions and what the stress hormones do, and they assign more meaning to it, they're more prone to become conscious of those unconscious states of mind and body, and you start to see genes begin to move back into uh, balance again. Yeah, there, there's something here that I think is, is really important. There's a couple levels here that, that need to be, I think, highlighted. First, first of all, the fact that things like the placebo effect are, are getting more and more science credibility, in fact, as you point out in your book that's, that, is, that maybe a lot of folks don't know, is that in order for a drug to be approved by the FDA, it has to perform better in some way than a placebo. The placebo, the placebo is sort of a control. But, but what we're seeing here is, is that we are, I think, breaking down the barrier between thoughts and matter. We're sort of... St- understanding a little bit more that these two things are not interrelated and I frankly think Joe that we are sort of, that we are that we're still figuring it out <laughs> we're still but but the fact that there's test studies experiments so many that you talk about in your book you are the placebo there's so many real life examples of this being true that it's it starts saying folks uh, we need to devote the the force of science or the power of science into investigating this because at the end of the day, the object is to be healthy, is to heal diseases. And unless you know the causes of those diseases, you're never going to fix it. You know, I have this whole thing and it, this is, you know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer and and I always tell people, if you want to fix a problem, you got to go to the source. There's so many people that don't want to talk about the source of the problem. And, and your, your points about stress and about finding, you know, what is the ultimate cause? And I, I thought that the way you handle in your book is so well done, uh, you know, where you talk about the, uh, how, how beliefs are formed. So I, w- I, want, you to, I want you to talk about that uh, that in a second, but I also want to emphasize something here that is very important you said as well about how a lot of folks interpret quantum theory to only affect the very small, so who cares about the big? But the, but the object, but the point here, and, and it's, it's starting to be made by more and more people, is that, is that well, the big is made of the small, isn't it? So, 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 how can you separate the two? So, I, I like the way you put it. So, I, I said, I, I said, I said a lot there, but I wanted to highlight a couple of things. But, but let's let's talk about. I, I want to set. I want to talk more about this whole idea about about using real drugs as really a crutch, as really sort of the environment or or a tool. To, to facilitate healing, and that if you go through training, you may not need it. So, so why don't you talk about what you have done to, to, to understand how these beliefs are formed? Well, I think that belief, if you think about them, for the most part, <clears throat> where do our thoughts and feelings come from? For the most part, our thoughts and feelings come from our memories. They come from past experiences. So your brain is organized to reflect everything you know in your life. Your brain is an artifact. It's uh, a record of all the things you've learned and experienced in your life. 
<clears throat> feelings and emotions, then, are the end product of past experiences. And we can remember experiences better because we can remember how we feel. And when we're in the midst of an experience, everything we're seeing and smelling and tasting and feeling and hearing, all of our five senses are gathering all this vital data. And as that information rushes back to the brain, uh, jungles of neurons organize themselves into networks. And the moment they string into place, the brain makes a chemical, and that chemical is called a feeling. So people can remember where they were on 9-11. They can tell you who they were with, what time of day it was, what they were doing. And we could say that everything that they were seeing and hearing in that moment changed their internal chemical state. And the moment they felt so altered inside of them, they woke up and paid attention to what caused it outside of them. And that event in and of itself is called a memory. So experiences then stamp networks of neurons into, into patterns. And emotions then are the end product of experience. So how we think and how we feel then creates what we call a state of being. And most people's states of being are defined by their past. So then if you take a thought plus a feeling and a thought plus a feeling and a thought plus a feeling, that's called an attitude. So you, an attitude is, for the most part, a shortened state of being. So if you have a couple good thoughts that are connected to a couple good feelings, you could say, I have a pretty good attitude this morning. But in the afternoon, if you have a couple of negative thoughts that are connected to some really bad feelings, you'll say, I have a pretty bad attitude this afternoon. So if you take a thought and a feeling, a thought and a feeling, and we can, you know, continue that process, or we string an attitude and attitude and attitude together. Attitudes strung together create beliefs, and beliefs are just thoughts that we keep thinking over and over again from past experiences within the networks of those experiences that begin to hardwire those networks into very specific patterns. And if we continuously uh, look at our beliefs and we begin to challenge our beliefs or we begin to feel a certain way about what we believe, the boundaries of our beliefs are really how we feel. So if how you think and how you feel creates a state of being, the redundancy of thinking and feeling the same way over time conditions the body to subconsciously become the mind. So 95% of who we are by the time we're 35 years old are a set of memorized behaviors and emotional reactions, beliefs, and perceptions that function like a subconscious computer program. So by very definition, beliefs then are extended states of being until we become unconscious about them, unconscious states of being. So <clears throat> most people's beliefs they're not even aware of. And they're always, when they're challenged, their beliefs, or their beliefs are challenged, it doesn't feel right because it's challenging their past. So then... Most people have beliefs about money, about drugs, about food, about spirituality, about science, because they've only been exposed to certain things, and that's created, for the most part, the boundaries of their beliefs. So then, <clears throat> if you string a belief, a belief, a belief together, you start creating what's called perceptions, and perceptions have everything to do with the choices we make, the relationships we have, the things we create, and the behaviors that we demonstrate. So thoughts and feelings create attitudes, Attitudes create beliefs, and beliefs create perceptions. So if a perception is an extended state of being that pretty much becomes subconsciously programmed, it's entirely possible that we're perceiving a very small percentage of reality because we're filling in reality based on our past experiences, which means <laughs> that falls directly in alignment with the quantum model because <clears throat> the quantum model says that most of reality is made of atoms, and atoms are 99.99999% nothing. They're information in empty space, and 0.00001% material matter, particle, that if we're, for the most part, using our senses to determine reality, and the hormones of stress really cause us to become materialists, then we're looking at the particle instead of a possibility. So teaching people then how to deprogram their beliefs based on their past experiences because they have, may have had an experience in their life that branded them emotionally. They begin to view their life through the lens of those emotions. For the most part, they're looking at their future through their past, through the lens of the past. Once people start to wake up to new knowledge and new information and begin to realize that their beliefs really are from their past experiences and they're not true, then in order to change a belief or perception about yourself and your life, you have to make a decision with such firm intention that the amplitude of that decision carries a level of energy 
that's greater than the hardwired programs in your brain and the emotional addictions in your body, and your body literally begins to respond to a new mind. In other words, the choice that you make becomes an experience that you never forget. And just like any experience that creates an emotion, the amplitude of that decision has to be greater than the amplitude of the past experience emotionally, and that's when we begin to reprogram the, uh, the genetic code, and that's when the body begins to respond to a new mind. In other words, in that moment, that defining moment, the, the choice is really an experience that, you, that you'll always remember, and the inner experience is greater than any past experience, and that's when the body's living in the future. That's when the brain and body are living in the future instead of living in the past, and we've measured this enough times to know that when people truly do this, it's the same thing as the mother whose child is caught under the car uh, in an accident and she lifts the car up, or the, the person who moves into a state of religious ecstasy and drinks strychnine and has no biological effects. That's energy. They move into an altered state of being. The, the, the mother who's lifting the child up under the car doesn't say, geez, I haven't worked out in two weeks and I ate carbohydrates in the last two days and I don't think I can do this. There's an absolute certainty, an energetic shift that takes place, and energy then becomes the epiphenomenon of matter. And that's when the body begins to really realign, and, and that's when the body is now changing dramatically. Yeah, that, that, is, that, is, really, that is really interesting. I love, I love the way you build uh, a perception because that is so prevalent in our society and it's it's nice to it's nice to see you break that down this is philip camella this is conversations beyond science and religion i'm speaking with joe dispensa the author of the new new york times bestseller you are the you are the placebo and we're talking about how beliefs are formed now one of the things that i really uh like about about the way you handle the placebo effect and analyze this is that you put emotions together with thoughts because I think that that is something that we tend to forget you know I, I always think about Dr. Spock and the and the mind meld or whatever it was called where you know you focus your brain waves and something changes but I but I've always thought how do you separate the thought from the emotion are there are they in different little cubby holes you know different compartments in, in our in our in our inner state somewhere and the the fact of the matter is is that that the power of that thought becomes increased in or perhaps it, it can't even operate without being tied together with emotion and I, and so I thought that was that was really really powerful I, I want to um, go back to what you were talking about building building this this perception because it, it says two things to me first of all that there are not absolute beliefs and this is something that is is so prevalent in our society I think Joe where where we, we tend to to believe for example if you're part of a certain religion it's awfully hard to get some people off of the notion that they have to do some kind of prayer or worship in order to be saved I mean that, that's an example and I'm not criticizing anybody who thinks that all I'm saying is that some people believe that that's an absolute belief but I think it's the same kind of belief that you're talking about the, the issue though is how do you get people to change their beliefs? I mean, what 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 has to happen? I, I love the way you use the amplitude of the conviction to overturn the prior belief, but what in your experience uh, motivates people to change those beliefs? Well, I've been studying this phenomenon since 1999 and, and human nature, without a doubt. Phil always points the finger at crisis, trauma, disease, diagnosis, or <laughs> yeah. loss. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we have to get knocked to such a yeah. low yeah. denominator yeah. that we can't go on as business as usual. That's yeah. the moment that when people start to wake up, and yeah. my message really is very simple, why wait? Yeah, You can learn and change in a state of pain and suffering, or you can learn and change in a state of joy and inspiration. Yeah. So the old model has been, you know, get to the point where you are so affected you are you are so uh, altered that now you have to do something about it because your back is against the wall and for a lot of people sometimes that's too late 
So when people begin to understand what they're doing, and they understand that maybe that they've been conditioned in certain ways that they need certain things outside of them to be happy or to be healthy, and they start to really contemplate these ideas, the contemplation process neurologically is the building process in the brain. There's scaffolding that's taking place neurologically because as you begin to contemplate and you weigh your old beliefs against new understandings, that's so healthy because that process then begins to prime the brain and install the neurological circuits to prepare you for the experience. So knowledge is the precursor to experience, and the more knowledge we have, the more prepared we are for the experience. So. When you learn something new, every time you learn something new, you make new synaptic connections in your brain. That's what learning is. You are forging new circuits, and there's physical evidence of your interaction with the environment. If you don't revisit that information and review it, the research shows with uh, the Nobel Prize laureate Kandel that within a very short amount of time, those circuits prune apart. They break away. So when you begin to learn information and you contemplate it and you review it and you think about it and you, re you rehearse it and you repeat it, you're, you're creating physical evidence or leaving footprints of consciousness in your brain. Now, when you think about how you're going to apply that, you think, think about how you're going to personalize it, how you're going to demonstrate it, you think about how you're going to modify your behavior in some way and create a new experience, the moment you start to mentally rehearse the action or you start to plan your behaviors, the research shows in neuroscience that the brain does not know the difference between the actual experience that's taking place and if you're truly focused, the internal process that is the experience. So then when a person begins to rehearse that mentally, they begin to install the circuits to look like the event has already happened. Now they've warmed the brain up and they have the hardware in place to use. Now, if they can get their behaviors to match their intentions and their actions equal to their thoughts, if they can get their mind and body working together, they'll walk into a new experience. Now, the experience then enriches the circuits semantically and philosophically in the brain, but then it begins to produce an emotion as we talk about, and that emotion then begins to teach the body chemically to understand what the mind is intellectually understood. So knowledge is for the mind and experience is for the body, and in that moment, the person is literally embodying knowledge. Yeah. The word is becoming flesh. And they're signaling new genes in new ways because it's new information from the environment. That chemistry, the sensory experience then, is really beginning to instruct the body chemically to understand what the mind is philosophically and intellectually understood. So now you have mind and body working together, and now the person now is beginning to understand the truth of that philosophy, but it's not enough to do it once. True mastery is when you're able to repeat that experience uh, by volition, at will, to make it look natural and easy, that you've done it so many times that you no longer have to consciously think about it. And when we arrive at that state of being, we could say then that, that, that the internal chemical order, neurologically and chemically, that has been created from repeated experience, has conditioned the body to understand how to do it as well as the mind. In other words, the mind and body merge as one. Now, when the mind and body merge as one, now we're in a state of being, and that's when thoughts and feelings are completely commingled. That's when it's innate in us. It's automatic. It's second nature. It's a skill. It's who we are. And so <clears throat> going from thinking to doing to being, from philosopher to initiate to master, from mind to body to soul, is the evolution that we have to take. And getting people to go from thinking to doing is like hurting elephants through quicksand <laughs> because most people want to stay in that philosophical and intellectual realm. And so it's a great time in history to be alive because people aren't waiting for crisis any longer. They're saying, hey, I, wa I want to experience some of this and I want to understand that I'm at cause in my own life. And when people begin to take that kind of responsibility for themselves, they stop looking outside of them. They, they don't blame their parents or their, their religion or their culture. They don't blame, blame anything on who they are, they just understand that <clears throat> they still have to make their own personal changes. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I, I have been uh, emphasizing myself lately, which is, as you get older, it's not as if we have a whole lot of evidence that there will be reincarnation or that there will be an afterlife. Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no, but we know we're here now, so why wait? If, if you know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, if you know that uh, these principles 
about focusing on the internal states, about <clears throat> about uh, about exploring your potential, about having positive, optimistic thoughts, uh, about um, about believing that there is a correlation between mind and matter and bridging those gaps. If you know those are true, then then just do it. Break break down those barriers because we because you may not have another chance. The other thing that I think is important here, Joe, as I was reading your book, is 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 something I don't know who said it, but everyone's gotta believe in something. That mm. that is that is something that you can't get over. And so for those who don't who are not exposed to this way of thinking, the stuff that you write about, the stuff that I write about, the stuff that uh, maybe Amika Swami and and um, you know maybe uh, Bruce Lipton. There's so many people sort of in this in this field here. If if you're not exposed to those thoughts, you you wind up having the default beliefs, and and that to me is the big problem that we have. Is and that's why, frankly, I'm doing this show is to try to expose more people. To what to to what I consider to be the modern thinking on this whole topic, because you know it's a matter of replacing those outdated limiting beliefs with these unlimited potential beliefs that I think is really is really the key here. Um, so the the uh, what you do is that you sort of bridge. You sort of take the the next step in your book, and I wanna I wanna talk about that for a second. Uh, the way you don't just make this a book about healing, you make this a book about really building a world of more potential. And I think that 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 is something that I really think is exciting about this field because if it's true that the internal states can affect matter, if it's true that that thoughts and emotions can heal the body, then what's the stopping us from doing this on a more global basis? So I'd like to have you talk a little bit about, about what led you to make this sort of next step here. Uh, you've been researching this for, for decades. Where do you think this field is going? this field of, 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 of potential the, the, the world of or, or the world of, of greater human po uh, possibility what do you see coming down the pike in the next 10, 10 20 years here well that's a great conversation because um, you know to answer the, the questions methodically the biggest thing that happened uh, for me and I think this is a time in history where I've seen changes in the last 10 years because information is so available now that in an age of information, ignorance is a choice. I mean, it really is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about how many models and how many paradigms are collapsing because of information. I mean, me personally, when I wanted to research something, I used to have to get in my car and drive to the University of Washington uh, Medical Library and then go pull the books off the shelves, yeah. sit down, and then run through pages it would take me a whole day to do it. You know, I can have, I can have access to information in a matter of seconds about yes. anything I want to know. Yes. And so, because people have such a, a access to, to valuable information, you can become an expert in anything you want to know. Think about the medical model. It's collapsing right now. 25 years ago, you went to the doctor and she said, you, you have this condition and <clears throat> I'm going to take this organ out, and if there's anything else going on, I'm going to take those out. And most people said, oh, thank you so much, and yeah. they signed on the dotted line. Right. Fast forward to today, you know, you get a diagnosis, and all of a sudden people start going, well, well, wait a second. They go home and they get on the Internet and they research it for hours. And some people are so good at it that they know more than their doctors. Yeah. And so they come in and they say, hey, I, I want to try this therapy. I want to try this procedure. I'm not going to make that choice right now. I'm going to start with the most conservative means of health care. I'm going to work my way up to the most radical. And the doctor says, I don't know anything about that. Or, oh, I don't believe in that. And then people say, you know what, time to find a new doctor. So the paternalistic model is beginning to break down in medicine, in religion, in politics, yeah. uh, across the board. Yeah. Yeah, and so people are taking their power back. And so this is a time in history, without a doubt, where it's not enough to know. This is a time in history right now 
where you have to know how. I'm not interested in arguing quantum superimposition with anybody any longer because at the end of the day, nobody's changed. What people really want to know is how to take these abstract concepts and how to use them to live a better life. And so then that, that process begins to have them re, re, rethink their values. In other words, everybody's rushing to get to the top of the heap for what? So that they can have freedom? So they can have what? Wealth? So they can have less stress? But the process of getting there has, has created everything but that. Yeah. So when people start to figure this out, uh, they start to really start to change their values. And, and after the movie What the Bleep, I mean, we traveled everywhere. And I mean, I'm a student of this information, and I'm very passionate about demystifying it. And I think science is the contemporary language of mysticism. The moment you talk about culture or tradition or religion, you divide an audience. But science made simple unifies a community. It, it, it creates, it creates a, a, a kind of a holistic understanding, because if you use a word from tradition or religion, people are going to shut off. But science is the thing that really brings everybody together. So the most common question... Uh, that I got after the movie What the Bleep was twofold. The first two questions. The first question was, okay, so our thoughts have something to do with our destiny. Uh, how do we create a better life? How do we do this? And so <laughs> that's a great question to ask. Right. I mean, how do you do it? And the second question was, okay, so I understand that uh, our personality creates our personal reality, and our personality is made up of how we think, how we act, and how we feel. And that in order for me to create a new personal reality, I have to change the way I think, change the way I act, and change the way I feel. Why is change so hard? So we started teaching these workshops around the world and really empowering people to really sit down and do a process where they're making internal changes. And if they make enough internal changes, then there should be some evidence in their external world. Why else would we do this? Right. Now, in the beginning, we didn't see a lot of results in you know, 2004 and 2005, small changes. But, man, I can tell you just from being out there in the world, and uh, you know, we're, I'm about ready to leave tomorrow for a, an advanced workshop that I'm doing in, in, in Mexico, in Cancun, for over 400 people, and these people are coming from all over the world, and they've healed themselves of different conditions, and they've created a better life, and... Uh, they're they're passionate about this, and they're 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 no longer victims. They're they're creators. Yeah. And so, when you teach people how to do it, just like any skill, it takes a lot of effort to do it in the beginning. But if you keep practicing, it'll get easier. So when we started seeing Phil the significant changes in people's health, significant changes in their inner experiences, I brought in a team of researchers and scientists to measure what was going on in their brains measure what was going on in their bodies, measure their genetic changes, measure the energy of the room, measure the energy centers on people's bodies, measure the energy around their body. I wanted to know if we were really making changes, what was happening from a scientific standpoint. And so in the last year and a half, we made scientific history because nobody else is really quantifying this process. Yeah. But I can tell you without a doubt that common people are doing the uncommon, not just once, not just twice, and the brain waves and, the, and uh, the changes and the epigenetic changes that we're measuring and the energy that we're measuring, you'll never see in a clinical setting. And so just like anything else, you, you take people that are in the center of the bell curve or towards the midline of the bell curve who are, for the most part, high-functioning individuals that, are, of course, are, are addressing challenges in their life, but they're not, you know, they don't have any psychosis or, uh, you know, they're not, uh, you know, uh, savants in any way. They're just common person and you really get you have them retreat from their life just for a few days to remove the constant stimulation from their external environment that reminds them of who they think they are to separate themselves from the people they know the places they go the things they do at the exact same time every single day long enough to really understand this information and then push them into the experience a certain percentage of those people will begin to do what is uncommon and if you can measure what they're doing neurologically, biologically, and you can begin to interpret that. Now you have more information to teach transformation again, and you can close the gap between knowledge and experience. And, and I think that when people really start to embrace this, that's the deprogramming process, because if you see someone dance the salsa well, you'll dance the salsa better. If you see someone hit a golf ball really well, you'll hit a golf ball better. If you see someone lead with courage, and compassion in their life, you'll lead with more courage and compassion in your life. And if you see someone stand on a stage 
in front of 400 people and tell their story of how they overcame cancer, and you listen to what it took for them to do it in the, in the year and a year and a half of change that they had to make and their obstacles and how they broke through, you're more prone to accept, believe, and surrender without any analysis that it's possible for you. And that's where people start to create a new community because now a new consciousness emerges. Yeah, I think that, that those examples you know, could be reframed to, to give new meaning to the concept of a role model because, because we all need role models. And how many of us, I mean, I remember uh, trying to draw uh, in, in high school, and I've always been a terrible artist, but I just imagined that I was a, a very good artist, and I sort of watched people do it, and all of a sudden I could draw pictures. I don't know how it happened. It's one of these, it's one of these things where I, I think that what, actually I think what happened was I removed the doubt that I couldn't do it. <laughs> and that, that to me is, is really, is really um, incredibly important. And I, and I want to emphasize something that you said that I think is probably the most important thing that, that's coming out of this movement. And that is, it's got to be made real for the person on the street, and it's got to be made real for, for our lives. And, and what that means in a concrete sense is that we should be healthier, we should live longer, we should, st- we sh- we should stay uh, younger longer, we should be better people. It's not just, I mean, I tell people, this is not just happy thoughts. We are, we are, and I'm using the royal we here, trying to improve our state of being and seeing how far this whole thing goes. Now, I, I, I'm going to go beyond something here, uh, what we've talked about, that does, I think, connect with, with your um, ending of your book, which I want to, for those... <laughs> Uh, who haven't? You need to pick up Joe's book because it's 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 very educational. He's got a an afterword which is which is inspirational. And I have to say, Joe, your book ends on a similar note than my book ends. And I always like people that have happy endings. Um, but, <laughs> but but anyways, what I want to make here is that I think removing doubt, removing the self-limiting belief, is very important. But I I think in order to get the power out of it. It's, it's got to be a cultural change because I do think that if you're the only open-minded person in a room full of doubters, it's still going to affect you. But if you're an open-minded person in a room of open-minded people, I think that the, all of a sudden the possibilities increase. And I, I think that's a, a, a where things are heading. And that's why I think this is so important. These are not solo journeys. This is my opinion. This is not a solo. It has to start with yourself because you can only control yourself. But at the end of the day, what we need, I think, is a, is a cultural change. And, and that's so, so that I'd like you to talk about, uh, you know, your book, you, 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 the afterword, I believe, is called Becoming Supernatural. And maybe you could just say a couple words about about that and what you think all this stuff means. Um, I wanted to throw in my 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 cultural change because that's my own. I think that's important. But but what led you to go to this next step about becoming supernatural, and what do you mean by that? Well, I agree with you. First off, that yes, this is a cultural change, and and. Uh, Again, being out in the world and observing people uh, in whatever culture I'm in, whether I'm in Buenos Aires or whether I'm in Hong Kong or whether I'm in Milan, uh, everybody is waking up, and and people don't want to be lied to anymore. They want to know the truth. And and if you think about it, what does it take to become supernatural? Is that you have to keep doing what's unnatural, and you really have to really strive to go against the grain. Now, that means then if everybody else is in poverty and in lack, including you, that's the time to give. If everybody else is in fear and anxiety, that's the time to show courage and strength. If people are judgmental and hostile, that's the time to show compassion. And if you and I keep doing what's unnatural long enough, sooner or later we'll begin to become supernatural. 
So in studying just human beings within the, in, the, in the realm of potential, you know, <clears throat> the idea of this coming of a new consciousness, you know, that there it, is, it is a person that is going to come with a new consciousness. Now, it is a collective consciousness without a doubt. You see, we have an unconscious stigma that's programmed into us that if you lead with too much passion, you lead with too much conviction, you're going to get it in the end. Everybody yep. seems to get assassinated, whether it's Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, William Wallace, Joan of Arc, Mahatma Gandhi, John Lennon. Uh, all of these charismatic leaders, somehow they stepped out and really ruffled the feathers of enough people. And So you and I think, God, if you lead with too much, uh, with too much passion, you're going to be murdered. But what if everybody is leading at the same time? In other words, if you're taking care of your hostility and anger and I'm taking care of my fear and insecurity and someone else is taking care of their judgment and, and, um, and hatred, if everybody's doing that, everybody's overcoming themselves on some level, that there's a new science of what we call emergence that I really love. You know, when you study a group of fish that are swimming together and they all turn at the same time or birds in, in flight where they're all moving together and they all flock in the same direction, if you study that concept, you would think that there's a leader that everybody else is following, like it's a top-down phenomenon. But in fact, it's not. It's actually a bottom-up phenomenon. Everybody is leading. And it's a very strong hint that nature is giving us, which means they are collected, they are connected to a field of information beyond space and time. They are one mind, moving as one mind. So if all of us are demonstrating altruistic behaviors, elevated emotions, where we're no longer selfish and taking care of ourselves, but we're a species now that no longer competes or murders, but we're really striving to evolve as a species and we're taking care of one another. There will be an emergence of a new consciousness, just like the emergence of those uh, um, organisms in flight or, or in, uh, in swimming. And so the way then that we begin to make this change then is that we begin to change ourselves and if we begin to demonstrate more elevated states because of mere neurons, more people will do the same. So when you see someone leading in some way because they've gotten it, you're not going to be so programmed to do it a different way and be seduced by all of those things in our external world. And so I have great hope for the idea of human transformation. And I have great hope that a new, a new consciousness will emerge in the present culture and it will consume the past culture and the past beliefs, and that's the time we start to see a real profound change. And I was just in Denver a couple of weeks ago and with a producer of a television network, that, actually the owner of the network, and you know, we were laughing because it's happening so fast right now. In other words, there's so much activity happening around the world. There's so much new inventions, so many new ideas, so many people doing amazing things. And men in suits can't keep up with this. Yeah. It's just happening faster, you know, in, in a network that no one can control. And that's when something else will really emerge. And I have great hope for that. And hopefully I'm contributing in some way. Yeah, well, I think you, I think you definitely are. And it really is a, to me, it's, it's a joint process. I, you know, self-consciousness, one definition of self-consciousness is somebody that knows they're conscious and therefore can direct their own lives and I often think uh, and I believe speaking of one of my beliefs that this rise in consciousness or this awakening uh, whatever we're calling it is a natural process it's a natural form of evolution as as many uh, in the past have said in one way or the other of course their books weren't read but there's a lot of people who said that um, but now that we're aware that this is a good thing it's it's better to be more conscious it's better to be more aware it's better to know your own potential we could accelerate it and that's where that's where I think all this stuff comes in is that we again I'm using the royal we uh, are trying to accelerate this because we don't in my I think we only have one shot at it uh, leaving aside reincarnation etc but we got to do it right now and the more effort the more books that come out like yours um, and hopefully like mine uh, and many others the more people talking listening exp 
experimenting, seeing this happen in their own lives. I hope it's going to be like a snowball uh, where it's going to, where we're going to be building up that momentum and it's going to be it's going to reach a point uh, where where there's no turning back. Uh, so Joe, we've quickly come to the end. And uh, again, I, I, I'd like to thank you for your time. Uh, we, we left many topics uh, uncovered, but I also think we, we touched a, uh, upon a lot of great topics. I want to read, just to close this off, from, from your book at the end, I, I complimented the ending, and this is something you say that sort of capsulizes this. You say, if hundreds, thousands, or even millions of human beings embrace a new consciousness based on possibility, align their actions with their intentions, and live by greater universal laws of love, kindness, and compassion, a new consciousness will emerge and will experience a true oneness. And I think that remains the hope and the vision. So, so Joe, uh, for those, you have, I'm sure, a number of different uh, websites. But what, what's your main website to, if people want to know more about you? Uh, just drjoedispenza.com, D-R-J-O-E-D-I-S-P-E-N-Z-A. Yeah, and of course, uh, as I said earlier, Joe's got a, a number of books out there, and his, and his news book, You Are the Placebo, uh, is a New York Times bestseller. Hey, have a great time uh, in Mexico. It's been uh, really uh, fun and, and, uh, and educational talking with you, and I hope the listeners got something out of this. Um, there, there is, uh, I, I do think, a new world arising, and, I, it's, and, and the good thing is, is that we could all become part of this. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.